So this morning is October 28th. It is 2007. And our message this morning is called The Message in a Bottle. Not to be confused with any sappy Kevin Costner movies or Sting albums. The Message in a Bottle. This message is largely derived from the writings of Mandy Wakefield. Everyone in this church would be benefited by reading the things that this brilliant young woman has to write. In my life, I've been blessed by reading about her experiences with power tools, you know, a Black & Decker drill, uh, her neighbor's cats, any common day, every day kind of event in Mandy's life can be an opportunity for her to learn about Jesus. I believe that this is what Romans 1.20 is speaking about when it says the invisible qualities of God have been made plain to everyone through the creation. I believe that it is what God is talking about in Psalm 19 when He says the creation pours forth speech both day and night which is understood by all men. The Christian who loves the Lord, who is looking for the kavod, the glory of God, the weightiness, the presence of God in their daily life, will find it in their daily life. Because the Bible declares that the kavod, the glory of God, covers the earth. The Bible declares that Isaiah said it. But the other prophets said that they were praying for the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth. The problem is not that God is not in and moving through all things. He is. He's significant in your darkest hour. He's significant in your best hour. He's significant in the most mundane task at work. And He's significant in your praise and worship. No matter what spectrum we are moving through, God is significant. We just have to learn to look with the right set of eyes. Amen? There is something called Ingerich bottles that Mandy was writing about. This is an Ingerich bottle. Ingerich is a word that can be translated as bottle with life or impossible bottles. It seems that as long as man has been sailing around the world, one of the best modes of transportation prior to air travel, they've been fascinated with ships. So somewhere around the 15th century, people started this practice, and it really goes back further than that, but it became common. And we have 15th century artifacts preserved to this day. And uh, when they did this, it caused people to go, wow, it's like there's a whole little life going on inside there because it's a scene from their everyday life. And another thing it caused them to do is go, you know, that's impossible. How do you get that in there? The openings, way too small. So we're going to move on from that, but I want to leave that setting there for you. And if it falls off and breaks, that'll be part of the message. When buying something, anybody in here bought anything this week? Yeah. I bought lots of paintballs. <laughs> lots of them the other day. I found out you can shoot 500 and still miss your target. But when we are looking at things that we're buying, rarely do we ignore the packaging. In fact, an awful lot of marketing goes into exactly what the package looks like. It's said that the top several antifreezes on the market have the exact same contents, but are priced differently and packaged differently to catch the guy who runs in and wants to buy the cheapest and the guy that runs in and will only buy the most expensive. There is something about human nature that finds it hard to ignore packaging. Turn with me to Matthew, the 13th chapter. You could call that the packaging problem if you wanted to. 
In Matthew, the 13th chapter, we will start in the... uh, Oh, I don't know. It's going to say the 15th verse. But let's not start there. Let's start in verse 11. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and I would turn and heal them. Jesus was presenting a very, very special message. But Isaiah had said 740 years before that people would have a very hard time seeing it. In fact, you find out in all four Gospels, the words are recorded. Isn't this Mary's son, the son of the carpenter, whose brothers and sisters are present with us today? They had a very hard time looking at Jesus and perceiving the truth of His message because of what they saw before their eyes. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. This is not a new teaching, but it is something that's important as we move forward in this message. Tell me when you're there. What a strange way to begin a sentence. Who has believed our message? It's almost like a rhetorical question, isn't it? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before them like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. One of the problems that Isaiah said would occur from the very beginning is the packaging of Jesus would be a problem. His appearance in and of itself would not be the kind of thing that drew people to Him. And yet, look what Jesus says in John the 12th chapter. We'll quit turning so much here in just a minute. Isaiah said it would be a problem. Jesus said that it would be a problem. And yet you find this statement in John 12. Starting in the 37th verse. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence. Does it matter what the miraculous signs were? I mean, you can read them and you can find out that he did things like take six ordinary stone water jars and do something extraordinary with them. 
made wine from water. You can find out that he prophesied to a man he had never met about his life before he met him and seeing him under a fig tree. You can find out that he caused a man with a blindness from birth to be healed. You can find out that a man who had been crippled for 38 years, he healed. And on and on and on. But John sums it up right here. Even after Jesus had done all of these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and deafened their ears so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about Him. Isaiah saw into the future something glorious about Jesus and yet said there would be a problem with it. The glory would be packaged in something that most men would not find appealing. He even said it would be the kind of thing that a lot of men would want to hide their faces from. Be the kind of thing that you turned away from in the streets. Aren't all the truths in the kingdom just like that though? Could be overlooked if you didn't look for their significance. I think that's why it's so easy for us to look towards others and not at ourselves. But we still haven't gotten to Jesus' statement. It says, yet at the same time, even among the leaders, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. I don't know what's worse, to not believe or believe, but be so dominated by fear you can't act rightly. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in Me, he does not believe in Me only, but in the One who sent Me. When he looks at Me, he sees the One who sent Me. I want you to hear that. Look at Jesus, see the Father. When a man looks at Him, what are they seeing? God the Father. So there is a packaging problem that the Bible acknowledges right up front. To their eyes, Jesus does not look like the Father. But Jesus says that through His actions, they should be seeing the Father. Would you say that to God the container is not very important? This is maybe why He chooses men of little account and low reputation to invest the very most important messages in. In Matthew 10, 7, He says something very simple. Go forth and preach the message of the kingdom. Isn't it odd that Jesus did not send people to preach Jesus? When you hear people preaching from pulpits, what do I preach? Jesus, right? But when Jesus sent people out, He did not say, go preach Jesus. Because in that setting, Jesus was the package. And the package had a problem. It looked like a man. He said, go preach the message of the kingdom. That was the substance that was inside the package that was important, but easily overlooked. In John 10, he gets into a conflict with some leaders. Hear how they describe this problem. You just turn back two pages. It won't hurt you at all, I promise. John 10, verse 
John 10, 22. Then came the feast of dedication. That's Hanukkah. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. It's interesting to think that that particular feast is about an outward building being desecrated but being made holy by God's presence symbolized through the lighting of the menorah in it. The Jews gathered around Him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Wouldn't another word for that be clearly? Let me write that up there because we'll forget that, right? Tell us plainly or clearly. Something was important to them. If Jesus is the Christ, they want to see it or hear it clearly, plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name, that's another way to say on my Father's behalf or with my Father's reputation, speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The word there is translated into Greek and preserved for us, but Jesus spoke Hebrew. And when He was speaking Hebrew, the word for one is ichad. It means two people with one identity. Two people with one common purpose. When Adam and Lindsay got married, they became one. They were purpose on the earth became unified. Now, not in Adam and Lindsay, but maybe in Eric and Jennifer. The problem with calling us one is you often see divergences in our wills. There is often a time Jennifer wants to go this way and I want to go that way and you can look and point and go, that's not Ecod. That's because we're imperfect. Jesus was perfectly one with His Father. He only did what was in His Father's will to do. I've been teaching you about this for about two weeks in various ways. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him. Why are they wanting to stone Him? Do you think they got the message clearly? Was it plain enough? When we read this with our Western minds, we don't often get it. Why not just say, I am the Christ or I am God? He did. He just did it in a very Hebraic way. He said, I'm equal with, I'm one with. When you look at me, you're seeing God. They considered it blasphemy. So they wanted to kill Him. I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Don't we have a packaging problem here? We're not, we're, we don't have a problem with anything you're doing, Jesus. The miracles, the miracles, they're, they're great. We're not going to stone you for those. We're stoning you because you look like a regular old guy, and yet you're claiming to be something more. They're going to throw rocks at him and take his life from him because the container does not fit their liking. Jesus answered him, Is it not written in your law I have said you are gods? Can anybody tell me where that's written? 
Psalms 82. Isn't it nice, though, that he didn't have to tell them Psalms 82? They already knew. So you see that knowing some scripture, sitting in church, is really not what God's interested in. We have all kind of religious packaging, but do you really have the kingdom message in you that would tear out an eye to avoid sinning? That would cut off an arm to avoid sinning? That would lay down your life for the benefit of someone else? See, these people were packaged in the most religious way. Long, flowing tassels. Remember I read that to you last week? Beautiful robes, seats of honor at the banquet, showing everyone how religious they were. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. Have you ever met a church leader that would say that? I haven't. My packaging contains too many flaws that I'm aware of to be able to say that. Jesus had no problem saying it because although they found a problem with His packaging, He was perfect. But if I do it, even though you do not believe Me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. They tried to stone Him for that. They wanted to kill Him. They actually tried to seize Him for that. You know whose message they didn't have a huge problem with, though, as a people? John's. Not John the writer here. John the immerser. John the baptizer. I mean, the religious elite did, but the masses didn't. You know why? No packaging problem there. He looked just like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. Did they obey his message, though? All the people held that John was a prophet because of the way that he looked. Nobody was sure Jesus could be the Christ because of the way that he looked. That brings me to this bottle here. What is it that is so amazing about the bottle? When you're looking at this ship that is inside of it, one of the first things that comes across your mind is there's something way too big to fit through that opening that's in it. That's kind of beyond your natural understanding. Like all magic tricks till you see them done, right? You might even call it supernatural or miraculous if it was the first time you had ever seen it. The first thing that strikes me about this is that it's beyond what you would naturally expect to see. The second thing is that it speaks in some ways about the craftsmanship. Somebody who created this really had to work hard at that. Somebody had to take time with little intricate details to work what looks impossible to others into this. Maybe the third thing that strikes me about it is that there's nothing particularly important about the bottle. Nobody would have described this bottle to me. Everybody would have been looking at what was inside of it. If I asked you to describe it, some of you may have said it's a ship in a bottle. But ship will always be put first. Never would you say it's a bottle with a ship in it. I mean, not unless you were stumbling in your speech. You might describe its sails. You might describe the water that was in it. But what's important about this is obviously the ship that's inside. That's what's miraculous. 
Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. By the way, if you had a message in a bottle, why would you do that? Why would you put a message in a bottle? Steve's a mariner. Why do sailors stick a note in a bottle, put a cork in it, and throw it overboard? You hope somebody finds it and reads it, right? A message in a bottle is in its essence what young people would think of as an email. It was a way to communicate. You know what's really interesting about it is we send emails with a very specific address except those nasty people that keep sending me junk mail. Very specific. But when God sends a communique, He sends it out on the oceans of humanity for whoever would receive it. And the bottle's not really all that important. It's the message inside the bottle that is looking for reception. We have no problem picking packaging because it's beautiful. We have no problem picking things because of their appearance rather than their function. God is looking at our hearts and He's been sending missionaries around the world for centuries seeing whether we could get beyond packaging and accept the function of the message. All too often in Christianity, we talk about religious appearances, but we never accept the function of the message. And I ask you if that's true. Are we any better than the men that we just laughed about for wanting to kill Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5, are you there? Yes. Cassidy's there. Steve is there. Where's the left side of the room? Good. For Christ's love, this is 2 Corinthians 5.14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. If we only had that one sentence, that would be a great message to the Christian body. Your life should no longer be about you. It should be about other people. But for Him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, we're not going to look and divide people up based on their packaging. Even though that was once done to Jesus, we no longer do that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The heart of the gospel is that what your life used to be about is being removed. And it is now about the kingdom of God. And that's been planted in us. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. If you put pictures up of us and you flash them on the wall, we all have things in common. Everybody in here has got two ears. Everybody in here has got two eyes. And yet we are all very, very unique. We have different kinds of hair. 
Some of us have very little hair. We're all shaped differently. All of our packaging is different. And yet, in Christ, we're all supposed to find one thing in common. Something has been deposited in us that cries out to us first and then the rest of the world everywhere we go. You can be reconciled to God. There is a God who does not want to charge your sin against you, but wants to pardon you. The container is not important. The message is what's important. You know when the container would become important? Would you know there was a ship in that bottle if it was brown? Would you have any idea that there was a ship in that bottle if it was black? Hmm? It's necessary that the container be clear enough to see the message that's inside. Sometimes there is so much of us in our lives, people can't see Jesus. And our whole lives are supposed to be about what's in the bottle, not the container. Let me finish reading that one little passage there. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, like a bottle with a message in it, a communique from God. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great deal! He's going to take us who are filthy and nasty and dirty and because of the work of someone else, make us clear and beautiful and pretty and put that message inside of us for everyone else to see hope in us. When you all signed on to Christianity... This was the hope you were saved with, right? That you wouldn't burn in hell, but that you would experience an everlasting life with God? Isn't that what you wanted? And then, as you signed on to Christianity and He's your Lord and you're learning about more of what's required of you, didn't you have a desire to tell your friends and family? I mean, I went to the mall in my hometown and put over 3,000 tracks in the mall the same weekend I got born again because I wanted everybody to know. Didn't you have that desire? That's because innately we all become a message from God to mankind. The question is, is the message discernible? Is it readable? Is it something that's useful for God? Or have we so muddied the water that it's not readable? Look at Corinthians 13. From here you can just turn to the left a couple pages. Paul makes an astonishing, astonishing acknowledgement. Paul is usually talking about we're the righteousness of God in Christ, you know? He's usually talking about we have the mind of Christ. He says that in, Second Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2. He usually is speaking about the ability to go beyond what is naturally seen. Here in this one part of Corinthians, when speaking of the perfection that is to come and comparing it with what is now, he makes this statement. It's the 12th verse. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What is he saying? He's saying that there is an age of perfection when everything will be crystal clear. It will be plain. Right now we have to work with something that's a little more opaque. Right now we're working with something that is a little bit flawed. 
Well, you could hear that message then as one denomination has and said, hey, we're all sinners. Who then can be righteous? We have to live in this flesh. Then you have to make up ridiculous doctrines to push away the conviction of the Holy Ghost that compels you to burn out impurities. You have to say things to your children like, no, you were saved when you were six and you will always be saved no matter what their heart tells them, no matter what the conviction of the Holy Ghost tells them. There's a packaging problem. Jesus had no real flaws to obscure the message. He really didn't. It just so happens that the bottle the people were looking out of had such flaws they couldn't see the beautiful, pure message. Turn me to 2 Corinthians 4. You know that the makers of these bottles had to do some really special things to them. Have you ever been walking out in nature? Right? Somewhere you think the footprint of man has never gone. And seen a bottle? They're not naturally occurring. They don't grow out of the ground. How do you get one of these? You got to melt a rock or melt some sand. Have to start with a lump of glass. You have to apply intense heat to it to begin to shape it. I bet the glass loves that. And then at some point you insert into it something that's foreign. The breath of its creator. And if the heat is right, and the breath is strong enough, the bottle begins to take its shape. Glass is blown. You take a glob of steaming, hot, melted rock, and as it's being formed, the Creator blows into it to create a certain shape, a certain vessel that is pleasing to Him. What if that bottle hops off of the heater because it's too hot? Or says, don't blow so hard, you're expanding me so quickly that I'm fearful I'm going to crack. What if the bottle just whines an awful lot, like another kind of bottle that's used, and says, it's too hard. I just can't do it. I tried, I'm just too weak. Is the bottle having to do anything in this scenario? Does it require any action from the bottle at all? No, just receive more of the Creator's breath. The bottle doesn't have to do anything except receive the shape that the Creator is trying to put in it. How about that? Y'all in 2 Corinthians 4? What kind of materials do you think the Creator of one of these bottles looks for? Right? The blackest, yuckiest, nastiest stuff it can find? Really doesn't matter. If He works hard enough to purify it long enough, He can make almost any kind of sand crystal clear like that bottle that's before you because he's a master creator. You may have come from damaged stock, but if the master applies enough heat and enough of his breath in your life, you'll be shaped into whatever he wants you to be. And remember, it was never about you. It's about what he wants to take his time to intricately build within you. 2 Corinthians 4, first verse. Therefore, since through God's mercy... We have this ministry. What ministry did Paul have? Ministry of reconciliation. We do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. 
We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul said we do not use tainted glass. We don't use smoke and mirrors. We don't use deceptive or shameful ways. In fact, our goal is simply to set forth this message that's been placed inside of us clearly for everyone to see. Shouldn't this be the goal of every Christian? How do you respond to pressure? Do you try to intimidate people? Dominate? How about manipulate? Do you only do things for people when they're doing what you want? Do you withhold your affection if they don't do what you want? What does that do to the message that's supposed to be displayed inside of you? What do people see of Jesus in you if what they're looking through is a selfish, nasty vessel? But I'm saved. God knows what's in my heart. Great. He put that in your heart for the rest of the world to see. Is it even remotely visible to the rest of the world? If you were put on trial tomorrow for being a Christian, would you be exonerated? Because you need to be proven guilty beyond any shadow of a doubt. Are there shadows of doubts in the glass of your container? Isn't that an interesting message? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Paul was confident enough through his actions, through his lifestyle to say, if people can't see Jesus in me, it's not because of me. It's because of their problem with the God of this world. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told the religious leaders? I didn't read it to you. He said, you don't listen to me because you're not my sheep. Another time he said, you don't listen to me because you don't know my father. Your father? That's right, he's the devil. There was no problem in Jesus' packaging. They perceived a problem because of their own wickedness. Paul's able to confidently say the same thing. If my gospel is veiled, it's veiled because they're perishing. How confident would you be to make a statement like that? If people don't see Jesus in me, it's because of the problem with them. I have days where I'd be really confident. Other days where I wouldn't be so confident. Recently, I asked a man about his church attendance. I could tell by the look on his face that he had no problem with me or my church. He had a great big problem with God. When somebody is immediately angry at the mention of God, what does that tell you? they got a problem with Him, huh? When I give the same counsel over and over and over and I'm confident that it's godly and it's not received, the problem's not with me. The problem's with God. Our goal in Christianity is just to make the message clear. I met a preacher named Pierce. And he was talking about a friend of his that said, aren't you going to tell me more about Jesus? Aren't you? I, I know, Pierce, you cry and you're upset and you worry because I'm just not saved. Pierce looked him right in the eye and said, no, I have no particular compulsion about that. My compulsion is to preach the message clearly. I have no particular compulsion about whether or not you receive it. I thought that was great. It's not true for me. I worry about every person in this church and lots outside of the church and pray for you continually. But the responsibility 
for this church is to display a clear message. That's the responsibility of the church. Your responsibility is to... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves. You know why Paul didn't have a packaging problem? It wasn't because he had reached perfection. It's because he was not preaching the gospel of Paul. He wasn't saying, look, my life is the model for success. In fact, here are seven steps for how you can become like me, Prince Valiant. That was not Paul's message. That's the message that's most popular in America. Look at my suit. Look at my church. Look at the cars that I drive. You too can be a success just like me. If only, get out your credit cards, pass them through the offering. You give a certain amount of money. That was not the gospel that Paul preached. He preached the gospel of Jesus, the perfect container with the perfect message inside of him. I'm not holding up myself as a standard. I'm holding up Jesus as the standard, but I'm asking how your life reflects. Is it a reflection that is dimly lit, poor in a mirror? Or is it crystal clear? Does everybody in your life know exactly where you stand with Jesus? Or do you still have some that you're embarrassed to tell? You know, when we do a baptism, we don't tell you to invite your saved relatives. We tell you to invite whoever it would be hardest for you to do this in front of. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. When's the last time you can honestly say during a week you made yourself someone else's servant for the sake of Jesus? Not so that you would get something. I mean, I'm, I'm a man. I'll do the dishes so that it curries me favor with Jennifer. But that's not what he's talking about. I don't have any problem getting up in the middle of the night and going to give a glass of water if it curries me her favor. That's not what Jesus is talking about. When is the last time you did something for the sake of someone else for no reason other than you wanted to show them God is trying to reconcile with them? That's what Christianity is what you did this week for Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul's acknowledging his own little container problem there. Jar's not so crystal clear. It's more like, I don't know, clay, earthiness. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Turn with me to the book of John, the 17th chapter. You'll be able to go to sleep soon as this message is over. 17th chapter. We're going to listen to the King of Kings pray. He's already one with the Father, but He begins to pray for our benefit. In other words, He's letting us in on an internal conversation between He and God so that we can admire that conversation and learn from it. He has made Himself transparent for your benefit. I've learned something in ministry, friends. Very few people are willing to make their homes transparent for your benefit. 
when you find it, it is a rare and a special thing. Most people put up the prettiest drapes so that you can't see the ugliness that goes on inside their homes. Jesus has made Himself transparent here. It's the 20th verse of the 17th chapter. My prayer is not for them alone, His disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message. Jesus' prayer before ascending into heaven was that the same message of the kingdom that was clearly evident in Him to all would be placed in us and He even calls it our message. Well, what is your message? If Jesus had the message of the kingdom, what is your message? Your experience in His kingdom. This is why we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Could you give your testimony to everybody that you know at work tomorrow? Or would you be embarrassed to do it because of the other things that they've already seen in your life? I'm not opposed to sinning and blowing it in front of everybody that you know. As long as it's followed up with, wasn't preaching the gospel of Eric Stevens. I've been preaching about Jesus and His perfection. And I'm sorry. And one of the things that the kingdom requires is for me to come and tell you what I did was sin. And I am sorry. They have the funniest reaction to that. I've done that in my workplaces. They begin to tell you, no, no, Michelle, it's okay. What you did was fine. You know why? They start to realize they have a sin problem. The whole world wants to act like there is no standard and look the other way. And they are horrified when you draw a clear line in the sand and say, no, I sinned. You say, well, I don't want to ruin my witness. What is your witness? Is your witness the gospel of Steve? The gospel of Craig? The gospel of Darren? Or is it the gospel of Jesus? A sinner reconciled called a saint. I'm not suggesting that your vessel will ever be perfect. I'm suggesting that you work at it day and night so that Jesus is clearly displayed. And that you turn every failure into a success by making it the message of reconciliation. That is the gospel. The gospel is not perfect, people. Or what are some of the books, How to Live Your Best Life? Well, that's fantastic. That's not really what I want to know. I want to know how to recover from the worst things in my life. I want to learn how... And I'm not picking on an author. That's just a book I saw the other day. Okay? I'm thrilled to death with anybody preaching Jesus. That makes me very, very happy. I would rather have them than the people that aren't preaching Jesus. Our goal in our life needs to be to communicate reconciliation everywhere we go. What do you think the best way to do that is? To show everybody how perfect you are? No, it's to let your life be transparent enough for them to see what happens when someone's not perfect. And there's still hope. 17.20, Jesus calls this our message. In Acts 5.20, something else is said. An angel speaks to two apostles. He says, you go back into there. You go back right now and proclaim to them the whole message. It's where we get the word full gospel from. My favorite saying about that is from guys that were acquaintances of a friend of mine, friend of a friend, pulled into a church, asked the pastor, is this a full gospel church? The pastor says, no, it's not. Which part is it that you've decided to leave out then? 
stunned silence. One of the temptations is not just to not clearly display the message, but to only display the parts that are pleasing to everyone. Oh, I don't know, like God wants you to preach. Or God doesn't see your sin. Or how about this one? God is love. Yeah, He is love. You know what else He is? A horrible, fiery expectation of judgment if you continue in sin. It is just as wrong to display only part of the message as it is to obscure the whole thing because it conveys something that's distorted. How impressed would you be with just one sail in there? Forget the ship, just one sail, a toothpick with some uh, wings on it. What's impressive is that they fit an entire ship into this bottle. That's what's impressive. What's impressive is that when you do draw back enough from the ship to look at the bottle, you can't figure out how that great big thing got in that tiny little opening. In the gospel of the kingdom just that way, I don't know how in only six weeks' time Jesus built His whole kingdom inside of John Dang's life, but He did it. Isn't that the miracle of the gospel? Did John have to sit and strain and work and, and travail to be able to get us to see it? No. He's just the workmanship of God in Christ. Is He perfect? Well, not as perfect as Joy, but He's on His way. She's got a perfect screen name. Joy to the world. That is Christianity. What I am in the privacy of my home is what I am to the world. I'm supposed to be a transparent vessel so others can see the message in me. A very dangerous thing happens in the kingdom when you are different with the rest of the world than you are in the privacy of your own home. When we learn to put on packaging that other people like to obscure the message in us because the message is convoluted. I'm okay. You're okay. Let's praise Jesus together. Just don't ask me to walk this thing out. It's too hard. And I'm too weak. That kind of religious facade sends everybody to hell. It gives others around you the impression that they're holy and I'm like them. But what if they're not really holy? What if that's just the facade? God has a cure for this. Before I get to the cure, I do want to share with you two other scriptures that I just mentioned. You ought to write them down. Especially if it's your homework to be here. My little niece has got a religious studies class and she's diligently taking notes. I'm proud that they're here. I love them. Isn't she a pretty little girl? Inside now. 2 Corinthians 1.18 says, The promises of God are not yes and no. The promises of God are not yes this week, no this week. The promises of God are not, yes, I will follow you this moment. No, I'm not going to follow you five minutes from now because it's too hard and I'm too weak. The promises of God are always yes and amen. That means, yes, I will do your will and amen means, so be it. Here's another way to say that in English. I will do it and to hell with the consequences. That is the attitude of a Christian. God's will today, tomorrow, and forever, God's will, God's will only. Anything else is what young people or this pastor might call flaky. And that's all the world's ever seen. Yes, this week, no, when you really need me. Yes, right now, no, when you call me tonight. Yes, right now, no, when no one is looking. Integrity is what you do when no one looks. Uprightness is 
what you do after the fall. In Galatians 2.6, Paul says something about some other religious leaders that is amazing. It is amazing. He wrote this in the Holy Word of God for all time. I can't imagine doing this. He said, I went to Jerusalem to see those who were pillars in the church. Whatever they are makes no difference to me because God does not look at the external appearance but the hearts of men. Y'all look it up after the service. He said he did not care what they were. He cared about the message. I think all too often we care entirely too much about the way that we are perceived. We work to project certain images. We want people to think we are very holy. The best thing we could do is be very transparent. Then people would know exactly what they're getting. There is no worse feeling in the world than to be in a relationship with someone and find out after many years, weeks, days, hours, or in my case, even minutes, that they've been lying to you. You know what that is? That's an opaque, dirty, nasty glass. Why not just be straight up front and tell everybody what you are when they meet you? You know why? There's hope. The message is that you can be reconciled. We have a fine way of deceiving ourselves and the others around us, and it sends people to hell. Ephesians 2.10. We're going to finish with here about four scriptures that will take you on a journey of how to clear up your glass. Incidentally, does anybody remember the uh, Sting song? Yeah, it's hard to get out of your head once you get it in there, huh? Yeah. He, he mentions message in a bottle over and over and over and over. Then he says, I'm sending out an SOS. What is an SOS? It's a distress call, isn't it? The message in you, if it's clearly displayed, some days is going to send out a victory. It's going to tell everybody, I've been reconciled to God. I'm on top of the world. Other days, the message is going to say, I'm in great need of help. Because I'm supposed to be reconciled to God and this area that is evident to all of you is way out of whack. Help. Help me. The fastest way I know to deal with sin is to make it public. In my life, I do that. There are very few things that I don't bring right before all of the church. I've been wise enough to not always burden you with all of the lurid details, especially of Jennifer's sin. <laughs> But when we're honest with each other, you know what you're getting and you get the opportunity to see the ship being built. How long do you think it takes to do something like this? In Mandy's article that she so skillfully wrote, she said that it was months that it took when they started making these for that putty that is the sea in there to dry. Can you imagine going through all of the time to form a bottle, to blow into it, to make it a certain shape, and then having to wait months for putty to dry? How often have you been impatient with the work that God was doing in your life? Be a funny looking ship without that ocean in there, wouldn't it? Wouldn't even stand upright. Sometimes we rush right off into ministry and the greatness of what we think that we are without waiting for God's boring, slow, tedious, hard process. Hmm. I imagine it took some real special instruments to erect all of that. I bet you even had to put it under a big bright spotlight to look for imperfections, to slowly assemble something like that. 
charismatic world, we love altar experiences, right? Come to the altar. We'll pray for you. Your whole life will be right. If only that were true. Come to the altar. We will show you how to get behind the veil to get in touch with the guy who will slowly work through your life to make it all right. That's the truth. Y'all in Ephesians? Here's a chain of scriptures you should write down. Then y'all need to go read Mandy's paper. I'm sure she'll make it public because I haven't really given her a choice here. In Ephesians 2, why don't we start with the fourth verse. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, He keeps saying that, (laughs) made us alive with Christ. What were those bottles called again? Bottles of life or impossible bottles? Ingerich bottles. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why do you build a ship in a bottle? Why would you do that? Why would you put a message in a bottle and throw it into the ocean? You're hoping that someone will view it. You're hoping that someone will see it. We are God's workmanship, we're going to read, in Christ Jesus, put on display for everyone to see. Workmanship. I do an awful lot of construction work, maybe more than anybody in this church. Some parts of the project require horrible sanding. Some require crawling on your belly in dust. Some require electrical work or tile work or plumbing work. Various stages of the project. That's not what anybody's living for. They're all living for that day when it is completed. We want to see a before picture and we want to see an after picture and we want to see them quick. Let's skip all the stuff in between. God is not like that. There is no time-elapsed camera. You wake up with Him, you go to bed with Him, and you live every day with Him. And the entire time, He is working in your life to change you into what He wants you to be. In the coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. One of the first things I told you when I looked at one of these bottles as I went, wow, that's almost miraculous. It's beyond my natural understanding to figure out how that thing got in there. When people look at God's workmanship, what should they see? Wow, what's happened in Cody's life? That's beyond anybody's natural understanding to see. That is God's workmanship. One of the second things that I told you is that It would speak of the Creator. The craftsmanship speaks of the Creator. I don't just need to look at Cody's life and say, that's amazing. How could that have happened? I need to look at his life and say, there is obviously a God who is working on his behalf. Cody, when I saw how good looking your date was for homecoming, I thought, there is obviously a God working on his behalf. For we are God's workmanship created... Christ Jesus. Why? To do 
good works. Just any good works? Nope. The very ones God prepared in advance for you to do. You might not be a ship in a bottle. You might be a train or an airplane or something else. God has a way of assembling us into what He wants. Our job is to work to make the vessel clear, removing little imperfections as He shows them to you. Our job is to be formed to the shape that He wants by receiving more and more of Him in us and decreasing the amount of us in us. God has a plan and a purpose, but first and foremost, He wants to display you before all the powers in the heavenlies. 1 Peter 1 says how to clear up your glass. First Peter 1, starting in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, <laughs> though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. My glass is not all that clear, Lord. What do I do? I have just the thing for you, Eric. Here's a new area where I'm going to stress you, heat you, turn you over and over and over. But the whole time while you are stressed and under fire, I will be breathing into you. And you will learn to trust me and your life will take the shape that I want it to be. Trials give you a chance for the Creator Himself to test your faith and show you and Him whether it passes the test. And if you've ever watched anybody blow glass, they rarely get this right the first time they puff into it. In fact, it's a long, loving, caring process. The only reason God allows trials in your life is to show you where you can improve, where your trust needs to grow, and how to strip more of you out and get more of Him in. Mark 7, God says, Hey, uh, it's not what comes into a man that makes him unclean. Because what comes into a man just passes right through his body. It's what comes out of a man's heart that makes him unclean. And then He lists the sins. It is an amazing thing. He does not list sins like orgies embezzlement doesn't list any bank robbers no grand theft auto talks about greed talks about selfishness envy all of the things associated with fear and greed he mentions in that list Jesus knows what is in our hearts he provides trials for us so that we can burn them out with his heat and his breath in John 3.30, we have our last Scripture for today. Any one Scripture should have been enough. He gave us a whole book, and I just find it a shame to not use enough of them. I was listening to a whiskey commercial. I don't remember the name of the whiskey, but I believe that this is, although Mandy didn't say it, she mentioned she heard something on the radio that caused her to begin thinking about ships in a bottle. Well, I heard a commercial yesterday that was a whiskey commercial and mentions ships in a bottle. And they were interviewing a famous glass blower who makes ships in a bottle. 
and they were talking to him about putting a ship inside of one of their trademark bottles. He kind of laughed and said, yeah, that would be fun to do. And uh, there was a problem, though. The bottle wasn't clear, and you could hear the hesitation. It became a joke in the interview. God's deposited something a whole lot more precious than a ship into our lives. How much more important do you think it is that we're transparent? How much more important do you think it is that we receive enough of His breath to contain the whole message? How much more important do you think it is that we allow the heat of the refining trials to shape our lives, give us the proper thickness of our walls, all of those things? John 3.30, he says something that I think is the key to the Christian life. One of the great one-liners of all time. He must become greater. I must become less. If you didn't learn anything else today, and I sure hope you did, the need for us to decrease and the need for Him to increase in our life needs to be a constant burning thought in your mind. In fact, this week you need to evaluate all of your actions based on that. Is this something that is purely for my benefit? Or is this something for the King of Kings' benefit? And when you do that, your life slowly becomes more and more Christ-centered. And the things that spin out of it are everywhere you go, everyone begins to reconcile with God because they see something clearly displayed that's not clearly displayed normally. He must increase in you must decrease. Can y'all join with me in that goal? Then stand up. Let's pray.